live and in color from the NBC News Radio Broadcasting Studios of KCAA, 1050 AM, 102.3 FM, and 106.5 FM, located in beautiful Southern California and in parallel from the Turfs Up Radio Studio in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Thanks for tuning in to the Water Zone Show this evening. Good evening and welcome everybody to the Water Zone Show today and hopefully everybody's having a great time. Um, we are host Rob Starr along with Mr. Chris Davies and we are here to entertain you and give you great information with the help of a wonderful lady named Guess You know the name of that lady? Chris, you know who that is. Oh, today's, today's a special day. I, I, I'm pulling around here. We got a lot of Chris's on the, uh, on the show today. We got three Chris's on the phone. So I have to be really specific. And I was just talking about Miss Chris Austin, but we also have another person named Chris Keating on, and we also have Chris Davies. So we got a lot. Of, it's, it's it's happy Chris Day to everybody. So uh, I won't be a comedian anymore because I'm not really good at that. Anyway, <laughs> you know, good afternoon to everybody, and hope everybody's having a, a, a good time. Uh, Mr. Davy, how are you doing today? I'm great. Glad to be on the three Chris show. Yep. And uh, I guess I should change my name to Chris as well. Then it'll be Chris. To the fourth power. Anyway, we have Miss Chris Austin, who's the purveyor of Nathan's Notebook. Chris, how are you doing today? Doing great. How are y'all doing? We doing good. It's, it's uh, hot up here in the North State. It's hot in, Arizona. hot in Arizona, ninety-five degrees. Yeah, and how how are you doing down there? Are you cooking in Southern California? No, it's quite quite nice. About eighty eighty-one. Right now, no problem. Oh, wow! Well, you're looking out. We're we're at 91 degrees up here in the North State, and uh, with it's uh, above average heat for this time of the year. So uh, already they're putting out a lot of reminders, as they have been for the last several months, that uh, the water in the rivers is running high, fast, and cold. So uh, stay out of the water. Um, sadly, we've already have uh some people that have been lost in the rivers so it i guess it always bears repeating uh this is not the year uh to go venturing into the rivers so um stay out everybody that's my that's my recommendation so when when it runs down the rivers it's cold water not hot water oh it's very cold this is snow melt cold uh, water that's coming, right? Melting snow, and it's deep and cold. It's cold, much, much colder than usual. Uh, so. I, I have a chiller on my pool that I turn on now and then when it gets really hot here because the water gets warm. Yeah, you know, they, they have used that technology, or they tried to use it um, in the rivers to, to when it was very hot, flows were low to kind of keep the river water colder because um, if the water gets too warm, then the salmon eggs and and fry will won't make it. So um, we've tried that before. We've done a lot of things here in California. Uh, so you know, what's what's the big happening in California this, these days with water? I know well, I'm talking about fish. Yeah, yeah, and the Newsom administration just announced a deal on on a plan to. Uh, build a fishway up in the Yuba River to go around a dam. I think it's Daguerre Dam, I think. Um, the dam is, is a low dam, uh, and it's actually been felt to be kind of um, 
not a beneficial dam, doesn't really do anything except block fish passage. And the, the local citizens group up there has been trying to get the, uh, the dam removed, but uh, to no luck. So now we have this fishway uh, that they're going to build around it. Uh, and so, um, I mean, it looks like an interesting project. It's, uh, um, and it was certainly, uh, I guess that they, I hear that they did build fish ladders on this dam, but they've been ineffective and they don't work for all the fish that need to get up the river. So, um, so they've got this fishway plan now. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of criticism. Like I said, they thought that the dam should just come out. They also talked about it being happening, um, all the, the deal happening behind closed doors and not involving, uh, you know, the local citizens in the plat, excuse me, in the planning process for this. Uh, so, you know, I guess, I guess we'll see how far it goes, but, um, but it looks like an interesting project. And they're also, as part of this, I think, going to try to return fish up above uh, New Bullard Bar Dam, which is a very high dam uh, farther up uh, the farther up the river. It's a, it would be a, a truck operation where they'd pick up the fish and take them up uh, over the dam and then and they, they, I don't know how in that reservoir or where they would, I guess, you know, where they would put these fish to spawn, uh, but they actually have built these contraptions now that they put at the base of the river before it flows into a reservoir to catch the young fish when they come down the uh, down the stream and uh, before they go into the reservoir because they can't get out of the reservoir to go, you know, out, out to the ocean. So I, I don't know. I, I have a lot of mixed feelings about these trap and haul projects because I think it's very stressful uh, for the fish. And I just, uh, <laughs> I just don't have a lot of faith that these things that they put in the river are going to catch all these fish before they go in the reservoir. So I don't know how effective it's going to be. Uh, but I guess we will see. There's a number of these trap and haul projects uh, being discussed, including up above Shasta. Weren't they, did they have some gadget that would shoot the fish? Yeah, that it, rather than truck them. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's got to be freaky for the fish. Oh, yeah, I just can't imagine what goes through a fish brain to get flung through the air over over the, uh, over the a dam. But, uh, you know, Yankee ingenuity, ain't it something? <laughs> Unreal. Chris, Chris Davey, how do you feel about them flinging fish all over the place? I've actually seen a video on that, Rob, right, with this, this clear tube, and they, you know, they really don't shoot them. There's a jet of water that goes through this, like, Right. Eight inch wide pipe, and they just put the fish in there, and the fish then essentially, you know, like a roller coaster, ride up that, ride up that water stream, and get shot out the other side into the uh, uh, upper upper reaches of the river above the dam. Imagine if you can sell e tickets like Disney used to do. It would be an <laughs> e ticket ride. I'll bet you. It would. <laughs> Crazy. Well, well, you know, it's 
the reason why they want to do this is because as our climate is warming and the temperatures are rising, you know, this where the best habitat is for these fish. And if we're still going to have them, that they got to be in, you know, they need access to cold water. Uh, so we'll we'll see how it works. Like I said, there's a number of efforts like this going on. Uh, so, you know, we'll see, I guess, is the best thing to say. I'm surprised PETA doesn't complain about that, causing, uh, you know, uh, stress to the fish when they fling them, but who knows. Yeah. So another interesting story is that they're, uh, you know, talking now about a new reservoir that would be up um, on the American River that could, you know, store water um, and, and help with flood control down in Sacramento and as well as, you know, keep water in, um, uh, keep more water in Folsom Reservoir. Uh, I haven't, you know, there's been a number of dams proposed in the Sierra over the years, and this is actually, I think, a new one. I don't believe I've heard of this. There's a, they wanted to build a dam on the Bear River. Um, I don't think that happened. Uh, they, you know, they were they were building a dam um, around Auburn. Uh, it was going to be, I think, it was a Bureau of Re- Reclamation dam, and they abandoned uh, building that dam uh, in part because of earthquake concerns, uh, but also um, because it was highly uh, contested and controversial. And I have a, you know. I have a hard time thinking that this one isn't going to be similarly uh, opposed. Uh, You know, I think that, well, there seems to be opposition to just about any water storage project, uh, you know, any place where people talk about storing surface water behind a dam or a reservoir. Um, I can't think of one that isn't hotly compo- hotly uh, contested. But uh, the thing is about uh, this one and, and the dams in the Sierra is that they would, it's going to block a creek, it's going to block a waterway, and that's really going to change the nature of that uh, section of the river. And, uh, you know, there's a lot more environmental consequences to blocking a stream or a river than, say, an off-stream reservoir like Sites Reservoir, which is not on any stream or water course, and it's sort of in a, a valley that's a, a small valley, and they're going to build, it's not just one dam, it's actually several dams around to sort of build up the size to create the, the reservoir space. Um, and it's not blocking any water course, but it is still, of course, uh, hotly contested. <laughs> so, but the environmental impacts are much smaller. And in the case of uh, Sites Reservoir, uh, you know, the family that is living that owns the property is just being used for ranching right now. And the family that's in there, you know, in that enterprise is is willing for the reservoir to be built there. Um, they're ready to to move when the time comes. Uh, so, you know, we'll, we'll see where we get with all of this stuff. Well, 
we need all these things and you know we, we got to look towards the changes of the future what, what, what do we need to have that's going to help the population that's going to be here uh, what's it going to do to support the ag ag world here because we, we we grow a lot of fruit uh, food and and, uh, and support uh, uh, wild you know wildlife and animals like cows and ca- cattle and, and such so you know th- there has to be a greater plan that the state is really going to put together to say, what's it going to be like in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years from here? Well, uh, yeah, part of, you know, part of the problem is that, uh, I mean, we don't have a lot of great places to build dams with, you know, with, there was a lot of dam building going on up until uh, the, the 1950s. And then it's, Stopped. It didn't stop because we all said we don't want any more dams. It stopped because the, all the best places were have been used. And we have like over 1,400 dams in the state of California. So, and it's also important to realize that it's, you know, you just can't point at a place and say, yes, build a dam there and expect that that dam's going to fill. Uh, the yeah. hydrology has to be, you know, correct. It's not, you know, you build a dam and, and you know, the unicorns with the rainbow horns come and fill it up for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, and, and we we have had this problem. Uh, like, reservoir, New Melonis Reservoir, they built a tremendously big dam, uh, cost a lot of money, and come to find out, that they did some errors in modeling how much water would come into the reservoir, so it's way overbuilt, and uh, and it rarely ever fills. I don't even think it's filled this year. Uh, so you know, part part of being careful is making sure that you don't overbuild or you don't create more problems than uh, you know. Uh, well. It's all guesswork and money, so we'll see what well, happens. Yeah, so ho- hopefully you have people that are doing good, uh, d- doing good work on the modeling to figure that out. Oh. Absolutely. Well, Chris, we're gonna we gotta go to a commercial break, um, and then we have a, a special recording of a guest that we did yesterday that we want to put on. Um, we appreciate it for those listening uh, to the show. Please go to mavensnotebook.com, become a subscriber. Uh, you can also become a sponsor. It's a great way to get the latest in California news delivered to your computer every single day. And uh, both Chris Davey and I uh, use it all the time. And uh, today, as I said, it's uh, Chris Day. Everybody's a Chris on the show except for me. And uh, I get confused when we have more than two Chris's on. So now we're going to have three coming on. So we appreciate that. Chris, Austin, we'll, we'll talk to you next week. You're going to take a little commercial break. And then Mr. Chris Davey is going to introduce our next guest. So stick around for the second half of the the Chris, Chris, and Chris show. So we'll be back in a moment. KCAA Loma Linda. The Legacy KCAA 1050 AM and Express 106.5 FM. Moving up in this industry means getting the most out of each day, so you can focus on growing your business. With Site One, you're in control, and we're here to help. It starts with the right team, 
Our irrigation pros can help map out a complete streamlined system that meet any requirements or regulation. And from the first dig to years after install, knowledgeable experts are available in branch or resources are available online to help find solutions specific to your needs. Next, we make sure you have the right tools to get the job done with the largest selection of top brands in the industry, bringing the latest in Wi-Fi enabled controllers, rotors, sprays, valves, and drip components. And because hard work should always be rewarded, you'll receive personalized pricing and earn loyalty points on qualifying purchases to help you grow. You're in control. Site One is here to help. Water is one of the biggest expenses for communities, HOAs, universities, golf courses, and resorts. So keeping those costs under control, especially when rates are increasing while water supplies are being reduced, are often essential to a customer's survival. Managing water requires multiple skills, which is why it's been complicated and difficult until now. AquaTrack brings multiple skills and technologies together to help large system users conserve outdoor water and improve the health of their landscapes. AquaTrack's professionals are certified landscape water managers and certified landscape irrigation auditors. The company offers audit services, upgrade advice, technical expertise, and water use monitoring. We already manage irrigation water for the largest homeowner associations in Arizona, and we're prepared to bring our knowledge and experience to help others, including landscapers and designers. Give us a call and hear how AquaTrack saved one HOA some 430 million gallons of water and $200,000 in annual water expenses. AquaTrack is Arizona-based, and you can reach us at 623-594-8689. That's 623-594-8689. Five nine four eight six eight nine. This is KCAA. All right. Well, welcome back to the Water Zone Radio Show, everybody. I'm your host, uh, Chris Davy, and I'm here along with. The very all-knowing and spectacular Mr. Rob Starr, who uh, is getting a pair of new feet and understands the getting the training for a marathon here soon. So we'll watch for that. Today we have a very special second half, guys. It's one of our own uh, from the Toro team. Uh, we're excited, very proud to have him on. He's Mr. Chris Keating. Now, Chris Keating, i got to tell you a couple things about him. He's got almost a half a century of experience in this industry. Uh, contracting, distribution, manufacturing, sales, education, volunteerism. I'll tell you, the guy is great. So listen, let's uh, let's get him going here and bring him on the show. So, Rob, take it away, buddy. Well, welcome back to the second half of the Water Zone Show with uh, Chris and, and myself. And I uh, hope everybody's still having a great afternoon or evening, depending where you are in the world. Uh, we have a great guest that we've been uh talking with for the last couple of years to get him on the show. And he's finally agreed and got his schedule cleared uh, to do that. His name is Chris Keating and he's the district sales manager uh, on the East coast for the Toro company. And he's a great colleague, a great peer, a uh, very smart guy. And uh, we're glad we have him on. So Chris, welcome to the water zone. Thanks for having me. I can't tell you how flattered I am that you consider me for an interview. <laughs> well, you know, the hundred dollars that you sent helped out a lot. So <laughs> <laughs> only, only kidding, only kidding. But uh, you know, one of the first questions we always ask so people feel comfortable, and, and we make this as easy as pie, and uh, we're not shock jocks, as, as you know. But what made you gravitate 
to the water industry? How'd you get into this business? Well, it was completely by accident. Um, in uh, 1974, um, you know, I was going to college and kind of putting myself through college. Uh, my mom had been ill and uh, my dad couldn't afford to, to send us, had to spend money for that. So I had to work to uh, make college work. And I wound up uh, uh, working for a landscaping company in, in the town we lived in, Hazlitt, New Jersey. And they just coincidentally were getting involved in irrigation. And I wound up uh, helping them install their first irrigation system, which was a Toro hydraulic system in Bergen County, New Jersey, uh, for Mrs. Trachtenberg. If, if you know, I can't believe I can remember that. But it was uh, kind of voodoo to them, uh, the whole concept of hydraulic irrigation. And I kind of had no issue with it. it uh, I understood it, took to it, and found out I actually liked it. So uh, all things said and done, I kind of continued working for that company, and that's how I began my irrigation career. Yeah, Chris, um, my welcome to the show as well. Great having you on, as well as uh, being a colleague at, uh, at work. I've had the opportunity to work with Chris on um, many different projects and uh, issues that we come up with, challenges and stuff like that. Uh, Chris, so I know I know your background and how well respected you are. Um, welcome to the show. So let me ask you this: uh, obviously, through those early years and and getting interested in that, somewhere along the line, you took a shine to um, education and training and uh, looking at the perspective for people in the industry and and kind of a segueing into what we're going to talk about here in a few minutes. Um, how important it is for people in our industry to have the right training, the right education. When when did you start to feel that interest in education? Was that early in your career, midway or recently? Well, it was actually almost immediately. Uh, I, I was fortunate to know what I didn't know. And in order to grow in the slightest, I had to learn things. And my distributor back in the day, Store Tractor, uh, company in New Jersey, they they taught their installers uh, how to design, uh, so to speak, and how to, how to put things in. And I found that that was extremely important. I also realized that in order to be respected in the industry and not be considered just a dirt plumber, I had to elevate the trade and be able to teach the end user some of the things that were important for them and their decision making in terms of, you know, what's proper and what's not. In other words, it's not all about price and plumbing. It's about uh, growing things and keeping things alive. And, you know, in order to articulate that to them, I needed to learn more about it myself. And I was very fortunate that our, our state association uh, put classes on, and I was always active and uh, participating in, in that. So that kind of was the uh, the early seed for me. And then, you know, as, as time went on, I realized that in order to learn, sometimes teaching is the best way to do that. 
I'm very fortunate in that I get to teach a lot. And what I realize is that every time I teach, I relearn subject material. So even now, after, you know, 49 years in the industry, when I teach a class, even if it's a class that I've done 30 or so years ago, I relearn the material, I tweak it for, you know, modern times and uh, new technologies and, uh, you know, hope to pay forward what had been given to me for so many years. Well, let's kind of get into the meat of that, because I know something really, you know, really close to you is a is a challenge in our industry. And that's that's the difference between, you know, what's a you know, what's a sprinkler installer and what's a real irrigator. I know that that's something uh, uh, close to you. There's a lot of content we can talk about here, but let's kind of start by getting your perception, your viewpoint on, you know, what's what does it mean? What do those two things mean and why are they really so different? Well, interestingly enough, I, I, I do a class on uh, the difference between irrigation and sprinkler systems. And quite often I ask the audience who has the word irrigation in their company name. And, um, you know, generally half the people raise their hand. And when I ask that group, can anybody give me the definition of irrigation? In all the years I've been doing this, nobody's been able to do that. Uh, it's a stumbling block. Uh, You know, they use the word, but they don't know what it means. You know, very often it's conflated. They think irrigation and sprinkler systems are the exact same thing. So what I find in our industry, you know, I mean, an irrigation system or an irrigator would define and then uh, deliver the needed moisture for for the plant material. Whereas the sprinkler system is the delivery tool for that irrigation. And Chris, Rob, unfortunately, you know, for the bulk of our practitioners, we're overly fascinated by the uh, delivery mechanism and woefully ignorant of its purpose. So, you know, why does this happen? And in the way I see it, most of the people that get into this business are often catapulted into the industry, what I call in the middle. They'll approach a distributor, a well-meaning distributor, and that distributor will show them how to assemble the parts and pieces, how to calculate pressure and friction loss, and all these engineering things, which, you know, fancy plumbing. And that's where they launch into their careers. And they might go 10 years in the industry without ever being taught why they're putting things together, why they space the heads a certain way, why the schedule is built a certain way uh, to deliver the needed water for the landscape. So with that, we grow an entire class of of, uh, practitioners that are worried about the features on a sprinkler head without really thinking about, you know, why these sprinkler heads are being used, caring about the nozzle that applies the water, hopefully uh, with some uniformity. And, you know, the the fact that you need to match the appliance to the need. So, you know, for me, that's our biggest shortcoming, uh, you know, as an industry. You know, we're manufacturers. The three of us work for a manufacturer and we do care and develop products that will enable the end user and and the the landscapes and the environment to to do better. But our conduit 
for those products to the end user flows through our contractors. And if our contractors are not considering the uh, calculating the need, the water needs of the landscape, then whatever appliance they build is going to be mismatched to that need. So uh, that's kind of the premise of where I, you know, where I'm coming at, Chris, with the with this concept of irrigation being different than sprinkler systems. Chris, do you believe that irrigators like in Texas are licensed versus other states that are not, where they have, I would consider a higher level of education about those things which you're talking about? Yeah, that's a great question. Rob, it's a great question. And I, you know, fortunately for me, I've been involved in a number of states and their licensing laws. I was the president of the New Jersey Association in 1996 when that license law took effect. I also helped the North Carolina uh, Association drive a licensing law through through that state. And there are some nuances there Uh, in New Jersey. You had to pass a rigorous test, but they didn't have education requirements early on. In North Carolina, they grandfathered a lot of existing contractors in, but they put in a stringent education requirement right from the start. And what I find with education, industry education, in the states where it's mandated and necessary to maintain your licensing, you get large uh, uh, acceptance. People have to go and get credits for their license. But whenever that occurs, Rob, I always ask the group, let's say there's 100 people in the class, I ask who would be here if it wasn't for the requirements for your licensing education. And very often people are honest and I get two or three people who raise their hand. So it tells me that there's not a quest uh, in general for for industry education as much as there is a need when it's mandated. So, um, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, our industry has plenty of education available and it's inexpensive. But by and large, you know, our our uh, our folks don't take advantage of it. Now, I will say that the IA and all their their contractors, they they do uh, take advantage of the, of the education. But for every well-educated contractor, there might be 10 others that just buy their trade without ever caring about, you know, bettering their themselves or their companies through understanding more about about education or about irrigation. So I'm not sure if I answered your question. <laughs> no, you did. This is a follow up question. You know, public education in the last 10, 15 years has, has changed a lot. And a lot of a lot of school districts are getting rid of trade uh, classes and things of that sort. You know, I, I, w- I did a project with a, a, a Indian school, a U.S. Bureau of Indians, and we brought in information from the IA and, and, and all the education uh, equipment and, and, and books. And they started teaching with a university called Cal Baptist University in the ninth grade. And by time to graduate, they would take, they'd take these classes. But for the four years, they would be get trained in the IA technology and, and, and education portions. And when they graduated, they had an opportunity to get a job starting at forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 a year. You know, so they, so they got certified by the IA, and, and that's a good trade. Do you, do you think more schools 
should be directed to do more trades or should there be individual trade schools being more created? Uh, because I think it's not everybody's cut out for college, but like you said, you know, contractors, you, you see a bunch of them and maybe X percent of them, you know, just learn by the, you know, by, by daily trying and doing, but no formal education. I, I, I think that's something that the, uh, the country needs. Your, your opinion on that? And I know you're involved with the IA with, with, with education funding. So mm-hmm. I'll say this. Uh, it's, this is a wonderful industry. You know, it's been so good to me for nearly five decades and I wouldn't, I wouldn't change a thing. And I would, I would hope that every opportunity that I've had would be available to young folks coming up, uh, whether they decide to go to college or not. And there is not enough, uh, outreach uh, through trade schools and, and uh, community colleges to enable uh, us to grow the next generation of young irrigators. We try. Uh, the Toro Company has sponsored the IA's E3 program for many years, and that basically targets uh, students in universities and community colleges and so on and gives them an exposure to our industry. But you know, by and large, that's just kind of spitting into the ocean. We might occasionally place somebody into the industry, but the need for, you know, upcoming new business owners and practitioners is enormous. And I think it is unfortunate that we don't have more of an opportunity to grow that next generation through trade schools and and so forth. Um, So, yeah, we could use more of that for sure. I know one question I have, I'll turn back over to Chris, is that the education, I think, is, is super important. You know, most contractors that I see in California, Arizona, and they take care of HOAs or things, they're more interested in keeping up the curb appeal because that's what the people want. You know, they, they have expensive homes and private communities. They want it to look nice. So they water a lot. And I think that's that's a problem that people don't understand how to properly water it and how much water to do. And I think the technology uh, over the last 15 years has uh, given a lot of tools to uh, irrigators in that. How do you how do you view yourself on that? Well, I I, I don't want to be perceived as pontificating or, or dogging the industry, but I will tell you that we are absolutely abysmal at self-regulating. You know, we the, the industry has a tremendous amount of technology and tools available to create, install, uh, maintain efficient irrigation systems. But by and large, we don't take enough advantage of those things. We tend to operate uh, on habit. And what I often see is that let, let's just look at controllers, for instance. You know, I was installing systems in in you know, the mid 1970s. And I look at programs in controllers today all over the country, and I see them programmed like controllers were programmed in 1970. And, you know, that's just shameful. We've got all kinds of smart technologies and efficient opportunities, but we tend to use them or dumb them down to mimic things that were functionally uh, appropriate decades ago. So, you know, there's there's a concept, uh, you know, doing the right thing and then doing things right. And I think mostly everybody starts out their day trying to do the right thing. But doing things right doesn't come easy. You have to 
educate yourself and stay on the vanguard of, of all these new technologies. And, you know, what I'd like to see is our industry marry the two uh, a little more closely. I'd like to see people doing the right thing more today uh, th than they actually do. There's nothing right about installing a, a full system with variable arc nozzles on, on unregulated spray heads. There's nothing right about buying and selling a smart controller and then programming it like a swimming pool heater timer uh, from 1970. So, you know, people rail at, at legislators when they create laws that impact our, our industry because we are not self-regulating our uh, properly and saving enough water on our own. The technology exists. The techniques exist. The education to train people to do things right exists. But by and large, it's, you know, often ignored. And, uh, you know, for those that don't ignore it, I've got nothing but, you know, admiration and praise. Those that have educated themselves and present these technologies and then implement them in their daily activities, it is a wonderful thing to see. But, but like I said earlier, for every great contractor, I'm afraid there are maybe a dozen others that, uh, you know, kind of have had their habits passed down to them generationally through the years and their their companies mimic that of a contractor in the 60s or 70s. And, you know, doing things right in 1970 is different than doing things right in 2023. So, you know, we're not properly taking advantage of all these wonderful technologies that have been given to us in the past 10 years. Well, I'll tell you, Chris, I got to point this out. I mean, really, this is great insights, by the way, um, and and just, just a wonderful way of expressing this, um, what you started off expressing with this disconnect, right, between uh, between, you know, doing the right thing and doing things right and sprinkler systems versus, you know, irrigation. I mean, this is this is all good, all good stuff. And that like 10 to one proportion you were talking about really, really paints a picture of of how many opportunities there are in this industry um, uh, to do better. In fact, uh, for our listeners, I've, I've heard Chris speak. Um, and seeing the content of these classes, I think Chris, you described this as disproportionate priorities. I think you've 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 called it right. That was your term. Mm -hmm. So yeah, um, it, and you know when I say ten to one, I think I'm being kind because, like probably. I mentioned, like I mentioned earlier, when I asked the question in a in a licensing state who would be in class if you didn't have to get credits for your license and if there's a hundred attendees and two people raise their hand that tells me a lot and it, it's that's a di that's different than 10 to 1 <laughs> that's closer to a hundred to one and uh, you know i i, I don't want to damn the industry by it disproportionately attacking the practitioners like i said i think every one of our practitioners uh, sets out in the beginning of the day to do the right thing. It's intrinsic in your nature. It's part of your DNA. You want to, you want to be a good guy. You want to do the do the right thing. But 
understanding that there's more to it. You know, to do things right requires activity. It, it's not just going along, being uh, in what you think is, is an honest, uh, you know, business person. You have to invest your time and energy to learn what the right thing is for today, not assume that what was right 50 years ago is right for today. And those that do that, their businesses thrive, Chris. I, I, I see it all the time. They set the tone for, for the markets that they, they you know, uh, uh, spend their time in and they become the leaders. And for, for me, way back when, when I, told, you know, I said I wanted to educate myself, I knew that I just didn't want to become part of a legion of dirt plumbers where people assume that, you know, okay, you're, you're the sprinkler guy. You've got a shovel. You know what to do with dirt. And, uh, you know, you, you can bury my garden hoses for me. If that's the pinnacle of our, of our uh, existence, if that's where the bar is set, I needed to change that. So I was the guy that was driving around with a, a, a soil plugger and telling people why we needed to apply water at a certain rate to match their soil. And again, I probably got a lot of uh, sideways glances from the other contractors. But over the years, they often came to me with fascination and asked how come I could sell irrigation systems for twice what they did. And yeah. uh, you know, so there is a value differentiator in actually learning and and using the knowledge to, uh, you know, separate yourself from those that could care less. Yeah, I think certainly the irrigation industry, our industry as a whole, has an obligation to to, you know, let people know you're not just doing this because somebody taught you how to lay a pipe or you know calculate friction loss but why are you doing this right what are the plant requirements what are what are the what are the reasons you're doing it for it learn about um evapotranspiration uh, learn about scheduling coefficients and things like that so many things let me see if we can focus this a little bit on what the industry offers today in terms of of the product offerings that have come out over the last 10, 15 years when we label them as smart uh, products, so to speak. So, you know, just taking a look at what you see, what your viewpoint is from your perspective, are you seeing contractors and customers adopting to these new technologies or are they doing it fast enough? Yeah, how, how much time do we have? Uh, so <laughs> I, I'll say this, in my opinion, uh, we have plenty of products and technology available to build uh, quite efficient irrigation systems. There's no shortage of them, although I, I, I do uh, applaud the fact that we're marching in a, in a great direction and improving on those technologies, you know, soil moisture sensors and so on. But when you consider what's available today, Chris, we've got check valves for sprinkler heads. We've got pressure regulation for sprinkler heads. We've got, I hate the term, smart controllers. They probably should have been called weather, you know, weather tracking controllers because the word smart implies that the products uh, are, are smart without intervention. And the reality is a lot of, uh, in the controller world, a lot of the smarts don't get used. And smart has become almost a uh, buzzword for 
connectivity or convenience. And what I often see is this class of controller that has an opportunity to really put icing on a well-baked cake, misused and simply programmed like an electromechanical controller from, from the 60s or 70s, but it's connected on the internet. I kind of, uh, you know, liken it to this, you know, you go into Home Depot and you see a shelf full of Nest thermostats. And, you know, everybody thinks, well, I'll buy a Nest thermostat and I'm going to, you know, convert my, my system to smart. And really, you plug a Nest thermostat onto a 35-year-old furnace and essentially all you're really doing is having the opportunity uh, to watch your furnace burn literal dollars from a hotel room in Dubai. Uh, I mean, you've got connectivity, but you haven't done anything to affect efficiency. So I think what we do is backwards. We, we tout the smart controller prior to really digging into the architecture of the system. And a controller will not make a dumb system smart. You've got to build it from the ground up that way. And that requires both the technologies in the sprinkler heads and nozzles that are available today, but also in the techniques. You can't have smart if you take all these wonderful technologies and then install them without care. A crooked sprinkler head has worse uh, distribution than a sprinkler with a lousy nozzle. So if we don't follow all the techniques and use the technologies to build the product, then the smart application of control technologies, it's a waste of time and energy. So let me go into another question in terms of, um, you know, the individual contractor looking at smart uh, stuff, uh, smart controllers, um, soil sensors, um, and that sort of uh, technology is is one thing, but on the broader looking at it on the broader sense from an agency perspective, local water agencies, there's a role for them in there, Chris, in this, right? And you know, what do you what do you see? They should do you see in your territory, you know, outreach, um, education rebates at the water agency level? Yeah, east on the east coast, it's not as prevalent as it is out west, Chris, you know, the, the water situation in the east in general is is better, but there are localized areas where water availability is, is tighter. And in those areas, they certainly have done things to incentivize their homeowners or even mandate homeowners to improve their irrigation systems. Um, but, I, you know, I'm the wrong person to ask of what's going on in California, Arizona, and uh, you know, the more arid parts of, of the country where it is absolutely critical to, you know, maintain irrigation systems and, uh, you know, and use whatever you possibly can. But what I am seeing in general is when a municipality uh, uh, wants to adopt something, they tend to gravitate towards the controller and you know, unfortunately, I don't know if they wind up getting the bang for their buck on their rebate or the expected water savings, uh, you know, that that should occur because the controllers are often installed on existing systems that are woefully inefficient. And uh, they, the controller doesn't do much to, to, to fix that. 
you know, it might reduce the run times, uh, you know, at times of year when irrigation isn't needed as much. But when it's needed the most, the system's going to run a lot and the controller is going to promote that. And if the system is wasting water through, you know, inefficient installation or lousy uniformity based on, you know, poor nozzling or mismatched nozzles, essentially what you've done is you've applied lipstick to a pig. And the water agencies don't fully understand the nuance of that choice. In the, in the, looking at, uh looking down the road five years 10 years maybe even 15 years what's a what's a a landscape going to look like what's the irrigation on the landscape going to look like now let's 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 take a focus through the uh through the telescope here and and look ahead you know i'm not a soothsayer it would be hard <laughs> for me to project uh the the uh you know, demonization of turf or whatever. Uh, I'd say our, our in our country, we want to have turf. We want to have the ability to use our landscapes uh, for the benefit of our families and, 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 and all of that. So I'm not gonna jump and say that we're gonna convert our landscapes to, you know, purely water saving uh, entities in in 10 years but there is definitely a trend to be more uh uh cognizant of native plantings and you know if turf is not native to an area and requires a lot of water to use there's going to be newly needed efficient application methods to ensure that that can occur uh, i think the draconian uh, turf buyback programs kind of backfired to some degree. You know, they they removed turf, they put in, uh, you know, rocks and so on, and created heat islands that increased the need for electricity and more air conditioning, which is water, uh, you know, in a lot of areas, hydroelectric and, you know, consumes water. So, you know, that, that wasn't a workable solution. So I think there's going to need to be some cooperation between irrigators, water purveyors, uh, landscape architects, and so on to find the happy mediums in the different regions of the country where things can actually uh, exist in cooperation rather than, uh, you know, in opposition. So. Well, Chris, I can't I can't tell you how much Rob and I have enjoyed having you on the water zone this week for sure. I want to say one thing, Chris, and that, uh, you know, this this coming up this year, you're getting close to celebrating close to a half a century in this industry, Chris, and not giving away where uh, what your age might be, buddy. But um, that's quite a, a, an accomplishment, Chris, and um, congratulations on that. And certainly has been our pleasure, Rob and myself. Uh, having you on the water zone. Any final thoughts you want to leave for our listeners? Well, again, uh, the pleasure is all mine. And I know we just dipped our toe into some uh, some subject matter that, uh, you know, maybe some might consider controversial. But at some point in the future, if we ever get to chat again, I would like to dig a little bit more into distribution uniformity and efficiency and just like sprinklers and irrigation are often conflated and thought to be the same thing i hear those two terms often used uh 
as as if they are the same. And of course, they're not. Uh, they work together, but they're not the same. And I'd love to chat about that a little bit and maybe help the audience understand why the uniformity of application is so important, because it does kind of limit the threshold of efficiency. Well, next time you won't just have to put a toe in the water. You'll make a big splash, and we'll talk about that for more in depth. That'd be great. But uh, thank you for this. Oh, we, we thank you uh, very much. But well, we're going to go back as we're getting close to turning our show back over to NBC for their hourly news. Chris Keating, thank you very much. Uh, it's a pleasure. We certainly want to have you back and talk more in depth about some technical things and uh, about more uh, more things about irrigation and how, what the homeowners can understand about it versus their contractors. So thanks a lot. And uh, we appreciate you coming on the show. down-to-earth, common-sense guy. I love this guy, man. And you know, if you've read his business cards, you know as well as I do, Bob, one of those guys, you know, like 27 active, three-letter acronyms after his name, right? Because he's a CID and a this or that and all kinds of other stuff. He's just great. Yes, he is. I'm uh, sure they're going to have him come back and talk about those uh, comparisons and what people think are the same things, which they're not, like distribution and so yeah. forth. And uh, So that'll, that'll, that'll be good. So anything new happening with the IA coming up? Uh, yeah, so there's a, there's a couple of things. So next week we're going to hopefully we'll, uh, we'll start doing some um, announcements for the IA. They've got a couple of plans coming up, a couple of programs coming up. Don't want to give it away now, but we'll introduce it starting next week. Okay. And we got to cut down on all the Chris's being at once. I'm the only one left out on that. <laughs> I don't know. I think I think that's a personal feeling for you, Rob. I don't know how I'll help you, but <laughs> <laughs> all the Christmas I know are all the Christmas I know are very good people. I appreciate that very much. But you know, one thing that'll, that'll always be sad is you'll always be a star. Well, that's true. Another star production. This <laughs> is my parents' huh. birthday. Anyway, it's time for us to go and give it back to NBC News. And the most important thing that we always have to tell our great listeners is please help keep our planet blue. That's right, because they all want green, but you can't have green without blue. So anyway, have a good week. Chris, I will talk to you on Monday. You have a great weekend. KCAA Loma Linda. The Legacy KCAA 1050 AM and Express 106.5 FM.